Hello and welcome to episode two of Indie Filmopolis with myself Mike Bourne, an actor-producer and with my good friend, uh, writer, director Phil Pugh. Indie Filmopolis is a new podcast dedicated to indie films covering the making of our very own low-budget feature, Own Worst Enemy and also the little indie gems that we love along with a sprinkling of movie trivia on top. This episode we're going to update you on the current state of Own Worst Enemy as well as talk about our experiences going through the fun and games of pre-production for Own Worst Enemy. <laughs> With pre-production as our loose theme for this episode, we're also going to go over our top 10 castings that almost happened but didn't. We're going to discuss our choices for perfect castings and complete miscastings in indie films. We're also going to review Lean on Pete. And then to round things off, we'll have a few recommendations for some of uh, the little indies we've enjoyed most recently. If you're joining us via Indiegogo, hello again. Thanks for coming back and sticking around. As ever, we are eternally grateful for your continued support. And if you've stumbled across us by other means, hello to you too. Hello, waving. Thanks for joining us. We hope our insights into the making of a low-budget film and our thoughts on other indie flicks will be informative and entertaining to you. So grab yourself a greasy movie burger and a refreshing beverage, and let's kick things off with an update on Own Worst Enemy. For those who don't yet know, Own Worst Enemy is a low-budget British dark comedy with dramatic and horror overtones and undertones and several tones. It centres around a reclusive man named Andy and the fictitious friends and enemies he creates in order to justify his self-imposed exile. It stars myself as both Andy and his imaginary foe, Mr P, and it's written and directed by Mr Phil Pugh. As many of you will be aware, we're in the throes of post-production at the moment. Uh, so, Phil, how's it all going? It's going great this month, I think. So, as you know, we've got a, a big two-and-a-half-hour cut of the film. Yeah. I'm trying to find ways to make this film shorter. Yeah. When I wrote the script, I kind of thought that I'd that every scene that I'd put in it, I'd put in it for a reason. So I was kind of really worried what, what I could take out. I was watching this, um, Trey Parker, Matt Stone. They'd gone and surprised a... Um, I think it was a writing class, you know, like a university writing class. Yeah. And they were just talking through um, one of the specific things that they do when they think that they've got a finished script. They've got like a sort of a formula of sorts that they use. Their sort of, um, their formula, their theory, they go through and go through beat by beat, scene by scene. Yes. And so what they try and do is every scene, something happens, yeah. and then the following scene needs to be but or therefore... Okay. Not, and then. So, but all their people. Oh, okay. Or therefore. Like so any kind of and thens yeah. they get rid of because they don't need it, or they can consolidate the and thens into the to previous the thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. So, and I kind of thought, kind of instinctively had done that anyway, yeah. writing the script for Own Worst Enemy. But then I sort of started going through the scenes. I'm thinking, no, actually, that's a and then scene. <clears throat> I can get rid of that. Um, so that was kind of like a weird. Like I wasn't looking specifically for advice, but that I just happened to stumble across that. And well, it's good that I, you know. Yeah. Um, so that actually, I was able to take out two or three scenes just. Excellent. Just by doing that. So, and I also thought that's a really good. I don't know if people listen to this or into writing, but that's a good. That's a good tip. That's tip a really to good um, tip. big up the Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Yeah. So, anything more on them? Um, almost anything you can tell us? Absolutely. So, I invited over. Literally my harshest critic, my best friend, Nusha Amini, who is Amini, 
Um, I've met her, she's lovely. (laughs) As well as being your friend, um, obviously it's worth saying she's got experience um, with film work as well. Mm -hmm. Bless her, she watched the whole two and a half hour film. Yeah, what did she think? uh, That's the one you want to get out of the way first. Yeah, Yeah, she's brutal. But, um, like... I think we were just like five minutes into the film and we were squabbling over um, one cut. <laughs> <laughs> and it cut down to like three frames. And she's like, no, wow. she's wrong. But um... <laughs> <laughs> Do you hear that? You're wrong. But it was great because she hadn't had anything to do with the making of the film. She wasn't even in the country at the time. Um, she read the script five years ago. So like, she had no... Uh, no preconceptive no, no. ideas about it. Yeah, so... Instantly, it's just well, that needs to go. That's too long. And that's, that's what you and, need. Um, absolutely. So need. I almost wanted to kill myself after she'd seen the whole thing. <laughs> but um, anyway, so everything's going well in the edit. That's mm-hmm. what we need. Okay, let's backtrack a little now and um, talk a bit about the earlier stages of making the film. Uh, in this podcast, episode by episode, going to go through the whole process of making Own West Enemy from its initial stages right through to its completion. Uh, In the last podcast, we talked about the conception of the film. Check out that episode if you haven't already. This time, we're going to focus on the pre-production of the film. So why not start in a good place? Like the casting. The casting, that's probably your favourite bit, is it, Mike? The most important (laughs) personal bit for you. Only only because I got cast. Yay! Which was lovely. When I had the initial idea, it was... I don't think I had anybody in mind, but when I specifically decided to write the idea I had you in mind Ooh, lovely. for both roles. So obviously there was no <laughs> casting hunt for the two main characters. When you first wrote the script, yeah. was it your initial uh, thing straight away to have the main actor play both roles? Or was that something you came no, to as you wrote specifically because of the line... Lines that he says about talking to himself. Okay. I'm literally talking to myself, so I, I literally wanted him talking to himself. Fair enough. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember being having any kind of intrepidation giving you the script. I think I would have been surprised if you'd have said no. I would have been surprised if I'd have said no. Um, for a long time, it was just me and you working on it. Yeah. Just rehearsing the script. Because it's 70% Mike and Mike. Yeah. And then the other... 30% is Mike and somebody else. <laughs> so the first person we cast beyond Mike and sort of outside of our circle of people who we'd normally work with anyway was um, an Australian actor called Matthew Waters. Anybody who grew up in the, the 80s and 90s, who if you're from England or Australia, you almost definitely know at least his most famous role of Bronson Twist in Rand Twist. Well, it, it sort of, um, it wasn't afraid to break certain barriers. It was insane. It's such an insane show. It was a sort of show that I loved growing up, but it was a sort of show that I never thought they'd ever release on DVD. And as soon as <laughs> I found it on DVD, I bought it without any hesitation. Um, and then re-watching it, I was just like, this is mad, absolutely mad. And then there was shows that I didn't remember watching or hadn't watched, and they, some of them were just so crazy to the point where I... I thought, was this actually a kids' show? <laughs> um, I think Matt's most famous episode, I don't know if you know it, it's the one where... Yeah, yeah. he, he, he has uh, special powers in his willy that makes him go yes. like a jet boat across the lake. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I've, and... seen, um, I've seen snippets of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, a completely insane show. And so 
this is I don't know like five or six years ago. Yeah. This is back when people used Twitter. <laughs> um, used one of them. Yeah. Heard of that. <laughs> Do you remember Twitter? Uh, so like when whenever I watched a film or that I liked, I would tended to follow the actors and the director, and then rewatching around the twist, I was just kind of looking to see who was who was around on Twitter, and the only person I could find was um, Matt Waters, and I just gave him a follow. Not long after that, he tweeted me and said so I think I must have tweeted something about having watched been catching up with Round the Twist on DVD and then he he tweeted me excuse me um, and, and said something like um, oh I hope you're enjoying Round the Twist um, I'm in London now let me know if there's any, anything, anything wow. coming up and but that's just kind of like typical actor thing that's I never yeah 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 so I never kind of thought anything of it then a couple of days later I think he did I sh- show you this clip from a short film he made called Scroller no I'm not seen this. it was him and his girlfriend talking in this scene and she said something to trigger him and he just went absolutely ballistic and punched her I think it's like wow. kicking her and then threw this push chair at the window yeah his whole body was just like pulsating with rage. I'd never seen anything like it. And I just thought, oh, that's Perry. Ah. And up until that point, because yeah. if you if you know Round the Twist and you know Bronson, like yeah. you would never look at Bronson and think Perry. No, <laughs> no, he was too cute. Yeah, he was just like a little rambunctious, cheeky kid. <laughs> and to be honest, I think he was sort of written as a bit more of a student in the script. And yeah, I thought he was more studenty. I thought too. if I if I change it a bit and make him a bit more chavvy. I think it could work. So anyway, I messaged messaged him over Twitter. I mean, this is like at the time I was like, Twitter's great. Like being able to network with people like that over Twitter is insane. So he said, "Yeah, send me the script." He said he liked it. He asked me to call his agent, talk to his agent, um, and that was it. Wow. Um, so yeah, casting by Twitter. Casting by Twitter. Wow, there's been it's better a, ways to cast. Yeah, and it's just kind of one of those things that I kind of felt was meant to be because it was such a weird series of events in a very close succession like buying the dvd tweeting about watching around the twist then following him and him seeing the tweet and going hey bear me in mind for anything and then him posting that clip from a short film which he couldn't possibly have known that would have been of interest to me and that brings us nicely i think to terry dwyer terry dwyer yeah so terry dwyer plays the weather woman the weather presenter and the great thing about Terry is she's an actress and she's also done presenting work. So I was kind of, I was looking for somebody who, who yeah. did both or had done both. Because she's been in Hollyoaks. She was, that's, yeah, how I knew her from Hollyoaks, um, back when Hollyoaks first started. Um, and then she'd presented shows like 60 Minute Makeover, I think. Oh, yeah. And I think she's been on Loose, done Loose Women and, and things like that. And so... Good friend and producer Nigel Davy approached her agent, um, and that just seemed to she seemed to like the script, and it was just like, yeah, cool, let's do it. Oh, um, and that was just kind of a day. So I think again with Matt, it's kind of it was a small commitment. It was just a couple of days for Matt, one day for Terry. So it wasn't you know no, that they were right. committing. They're not committing huge swathes of time, and they were happy to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a good filming day as well. That was the one. Of, that was the first filming. That day, was our really, first film day, and we filmed. And on that Terry. day as well, we had the other actor come in, Ryan Richard. Ryan, yep. Um, and he played the other weatherman. Yes, he did. Um, again, he was cast through Twitter as well. <laughs> so um, big up to Twitter. Yes. Again, he was just kind of tweeting me, and he was super funny. I checked out what he he was doing, um, and he was just perfect for this. 
role of the um, the weather presenter, and he came on. He was great, wasn't he? He was. Um, oh yeah, he was like, so nice. And really, he's, really he's, nice he's guy. Blown up since. Like he's a. I think he's like Huge some in sort Germany, of. In Germany. Yeah, much. absolutely. In Germany, I think he's, he's like the deck of Germany. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's a busy boy. <clears throat> Which I think brings us nicely onto. I think was your star turn or turns, as there's two of them. Mm-hmm. The Phelps brothers. So. James and Oliver Phelps, better known as the Weasley Twins, is it? Yeah, they're known um, as the Weasley Twins from the Harry Potter films. Um, and so I'd met these guys before at charity events. Like oh, they were yeah. they're ambassadors for um, a, a local charity called uh, what's his name Harry yeah, Harry Mosley Harry Mosley who did the yes. wristbands. Yes. Um, so they were very involved in that, and like I said last time, I do a lot of editing but sometimes from time to time do corporate events as well yeah. cover corporate events and on a couple of occasions i was covering charity events that they were at and yeah. so doing that i'd interviewed them and probably made no impression on them whatsoever but I, yeah. from that i knew that they were nice down-to-earth guys and nigel davy who mentioned previously we'll talk yeah. a bit more um he's friends with their mom um and so i don't know if we i guess the pictures are out there they played some policemen yeah if you're casting a film, I've got a really good tip for you. Oh, go on. Then. Okay. We were trying to think of people for these two policemen roles. Mm-hmm. And in the script, they were called Policeman 1 and Policeman 2. Okay. And I'd already given one of the roles to Gary Keane, who was from One Minute, who you worked with before. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's um, a good actor. And then we were looking for somebody else. And I think Nigel said, you know, should we try and get someone a bit notable in just for the for this last day? So I, th- I threw a few ideas at him, and these people were literally, they were not in any way famous, just had experience. Yeah. Every single person was turning down this other role. And I think it's a pretty good role in terms yeah. of the dialogue and stuff. But it did occur to me that when I've done short films before with actors, yeah, even just uh, unknown actors, I know that it's, um, from experience, I know it's important to you guys and your CVs not to be known as man on your CV. You'd, you'd like to be known as... Barry, or you know, yeah. I just have any kind of name that. So even though, for the purposes of the script, he doesn't need to be called anything other than man. It just yeah. works, but um, it doesn't look great on a CV yeah. or resume. I thought, well, okay, if I change the policeman names, then if I give them actual names instead of policeman one and policeman two, and so I name them after a couple of my friends, called them um, Constable, Constable Barrow and Constable Craythorn after it. the two Pauls who have helped us, who've helped, which will get um, Paul Barrow and Paul Craythorn. Um, and so I had this one role. I thought that one of the Phelps twins had given up acting and gone behind the scenes and the other one had carried on. Yeah. So I said to Nigel, I don't know which one's um, given up acting, but... Whether it was James or Oliver. Yeah, and he goes, don't worry, I'll, I'll sort it out. And so a couple of days later, he calls me and says, you're not going to believe it, but James wants to do it. I was like, oh, awesome. Fantastic. Like, um, you know, after we'd had all this trouble and yeah. um, then just... Just by changing the name in the script to an actual name rather than policeman number one, <laughs> that's that being the tip. If you're trying to cast a movie, don't cast man number one. Give them proper names. It doesn't okay. matter for your film. You can call them whatever you want. But for casting, you'll get more engagement with actors <laughs> if you, if you give them proper names. I remember that. <laughs> um, so Nigel came back, said James is up for it. It's like, awesome. So... Me and Nigel just thrashed out details, and we so Nigel was going back with James's agent, and then it's literally like maybe the next. It could have even been the same day. He calls me up and he goes, "You're not going to believe this. I've just spoke to, to Oliver, 
and he wants to do it. <laughs> and I was like, um, okay, well, <laughs> there's only one role <laughs> available. Yeah. Um, you're going to have to turn him down. And he said, no. I said, I can't, well, no, 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 I can't do it. I can't, can't. I can't turn him down. I just, and I was like, well, we've barely got enough money to afford the one of them, to be honest. And he's like, oh, shit. Um, and I didn't want to dump Gary. Yeah, because he committed. Um, and I couldn't, in my head, I couldn't see what how we could have twin policemen. I thought they'd just be too stupid. We- <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, this is going to be ridiculous. But Nigel was adamant. Like, they both want to do it. We've got to have them both. And I was just like, but it's going to be ridiculous. Having Why would twin policemen turn up? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But it Plus, worked out because, in the end, we... Um... We did a lot of hairy makeup. Well, on one, this is we? this is what. So I I reconciled that. I said, well, okay, as long as they're not brothers and we make one of them look not like the other one. And he goes, okay, let me go back. And he came back to me and he said, they love it. They love it. They don't want to. They want to act together, but they don't. don't they like the idea of not being twins. Yeah. I thought, okay, cool. Um, and then God bless them. They agreed to split the fee. Oh, this is why they're just such superstars. Um, the the best bit for me was a couple of days after we filmed with them, we put some pictures on Facebook and we put them online and Nigel got them in the paper, these pictures. And the website, our website, blew up. <laughs> Literally. It's getting all this traffic. It's like, where's all this traffic coming from? And it was being redirected from literally dozens of James and Oliver or Weasley Twins forums and web pages from all over the world. Like I knew Harry Potter was big, but I didn't yes. know that like that. individual people would have such a, a massive following. Yeah. Anyway, the best bit was these are dedicated Phelps twins fans. They're discussing on Facebook the pictures that we posted and they're like, I can see James but where's Oliver? Oh that's what you mean. And they're standing next to each other. Yeah. Um, so for James just, and Oliver that was it. Yeah, and I was just like, that's perfect. Like if if these dedicated Phelps twins fans can't yeah. tell You've made it perfect. You've made their day. But it's worth mentioning Gary Keane again, because yeah. in the end it still worked out. Brilliantly, yeah. So what happened was we kept the two policemen and then added a, detec- a detective. detective inspector, yeah. And yes, you're right, it worked out much better having a detective and two sort of lackeys. Which brings us on to some of the major players for the crew. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned him before, Nigel Davey. Yeah, so Nigel, I, I know Nigel from when me and my, Nigel did a collection of short films which we banded together called One Minutes um, which I hope we'll get to talk about more in future episodes but um, you know he, he was a relatively successful actor I think if you look up his IMDB page you'll see he's been in quite a lot of stuff but he ended up sort of finding a love for producing um, and so with this one he ended up helping me producing he helped sorting out all kinds of bits and pieces as much as the producer like at the end of every day of filming he'd once everyone had gone i'd be there with my head in my hands yeah. and he'd come in and cancel me <laughs> like he sort was, of like talk me talk me off the ledge almost at the end of every day um he, he wasn't he is an excellent producer in that he is yeah and uh, then of course you've got your director of photography director of photography laura howard yeah so laura <clears throat> she worked for Ardman, didn't she 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 went back and worked for Ardman, i think yes i think you're right i think after, in between um Hardman she, gig she did on West Enemy. Yeah. yeah, and she she went and she's done um, the Sean the Sheep film, uh, movie. Sean That's right. I think she that. did that afterwards, and she yeah. just come off Pirates, I think. Oh yeah, was that right? Yeah, she an did Adventure with Pirates, uh, uh, Scientists and Pirates. Yeah. yeah. So before we were crewing up on West, this was the first time I'd worked with a sort of a proper 
director of photography. Yeah. And I'd read somewhere that um, the hardest work is the hardest working person on any set will be the director of photography, and that was certainly oh, true of Laura. Be, she yeah. she never stopped. She from the time she turned up yeah. to the time that we packed up, she was constantly working and she never complained no, never anything. never oh. that was great to have somebody just was just powering through the whole time and then you say you got a sound guy who as far as you're concerned is like the steven spielberg of sound guys like in the in the midlands neil hillman is literally the the most respected sound recordist and sound mixer for sure and somehow by some stroke of luck we got him yeah. um, as one of our sound recorders, slash mixers. Yeah, he'd heard about the film or something so somewhere, hadn't he? It was through Kevin Paris, who we'll come to. Yeah. Um, sound is and sound recording is one of the really underrated things that people leave to the last minute. And I was like, I really need a good sound person. Like, it really makes such a difference. And I know he committed for. Um, a large portion of the film, unfortunately, was not able to commit for the entirety. But we'll get on to the other sound recordings from that as well. Yeah. But he was he was his, fantastic. He knew his job so much, and he, he's such a nice guy as well. Just like a really, really genuine guy. There was no kind of pretense to it. Like he had every right to be a kind of a stuffy, pretentious yeah. sound recordist. But, but well, he was he, he was, was on the ball. he was on the ground with us. He was helping us with everything and. Um, and the sound recordings that he did are flawless, absolutely flawless. Neil was really busy. He was so busy, um, and he was so committed to our film that he was doing sound recording for us during the day, and then at night he was sound mixing in his recording studio. This is like a, yeah. a, a tiny little film, but he he just wanted to help us out, and he was that committed that yeah he was kind of putting work aside to do. I didn't know in that. the evenings and then it, not just through the evenings but through through the night um, and then having a couple of hours sleep and then coming in and doing full days with us it's good to know that people even people experience that much in doing film <clears throat> can see the potential that this film can produce and he saw it enough to want to get this film made I think so like he did whenever he wasn't recording he was sitting there reading the script which most crew wouldn't normally do they just okay what's the scene we'll do the scene but yeah. he he wanted to know the the whole script and once he'd finished reading the script he was kind of even more on board it, you know he really could see the potential in it like you said but yes like you mentioned he he's a busy guy and yeah. um he couldn't do all the days but he did most of the first yeah. block and then the very last day of the first block, we needed somebody, and he recommended a guy called Billy Bannister, who's a great guy. And then he, and then between him and between Neil and Billy, they, they did the second chunk between them. I think he was committed as well. He was so committed, like he would, you know, he didn't, he didn't have to stay, like because we did long days, and he didn't have to stay with us. Um, and the the very last day that we did at our main location, yeah. we were trying to get everything finished off. We were there till. Three, three o'clock in three the o'clock in the morning um and he was there with us so yeah those that was our sound guys honestly if there's one good thing about this film is the the sound recording is awesome yeah i sound um, beautiful <laughs> and we're so lucky <laughs> so lucky to get them then other people we sad help some tanya makeup artist so you i guess you had more to do with them than me so what yeah. was your experience working with them? oh they were lovely they were funny they were um 
they were always on board, they were always ready. Uh, whenever we did a cut, they'd come in, they'd have a look, and they'd say, no, you need to do this on this and this. And they would stop and say, no, this doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. We need to make him up here, he looks too shiny. Or you would call them in and they'd be there, they'd be sitting, they'd be ready. Mm -hmm. They'd come in, their commitment was always there as well. And they but were... they always wanted to get it right. They yeah. always wanted to get it spot on. If they weren't happy, they would say... And, yeah, their commitment was solid. And they're always kind of game as well, and that's important because it's such a like yeah. a weird film. It didn't kind of phase them. No, like we no, did. We did yeah. have like other makeup artists who who were in and out, and they were great. But yeah, I don't think they quite got it. They could have. They definitely kept yeah. themselves. They kept themselves, but uh, Sam and Tanya were there on hand. But it was it was all it was pretty much like a family. All these mm -hmm. people were yeah. were a family. We were all working for the same commitment. We were all committed to get it done. We also had a guy who was committed to the project on the green screen side of things. Yeah, so the, and that was Kevin Powers. Kevin Powers, who was just awesome. He's a he's a friend of Nigel Davis, and he's done a lot of work with Nigel. Um, and so I, I knew him by association, <clears throat> and I'd, I'd helped him and Nigel do some of his short films. And yes, yeah, so like we said, we've got the we had these um, weather reports with yeah. Terry Dwyer, and I just thought it'd be simple. We just get a, a green screen throw in front of it camera sounds easy yeah he's a guy with a lot of stuff a lot of kit and when he turned up for the day he came with a green screen all the lighting auto cue wow um the camera uh, set up and he again he was like um laura on that day he never stopped he was just constantly working and he did all that for free he gave us all that equipment for free he gave us all this time for free yeah so that that was great the first day of just not have to even worry about any of that kind of stuff and it just been able to work with terry and then when was it our very uh, this must have been after we'd done the stuff with the phelps twins yeah it was yeah we can't talk too much about this no but it's 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 a it's a scene the timing that's got requires a green screen yes another green yeah. screen scene and a and an effect um what, an effect we'll just a say stunt? It, yeah it's a stunt with me and it involves the green screen and again he came he helped us out with all of that and um because all the equipment he he lent us in his time, I think we yeah. we gave him a associate producer credit or something. Yeah, because yeah. at the the time we were doing um, our Indiegogo stuff, and one of the perks was a um, associate producer. Yeah. And the equivalent money of what he what it would have cost me to hire all that kit that he gave us for free far exceeded what someone would have <laughs> bought an associate producer credit for. So, so it's like, he, you're more welcome to. Yeah, he's got one. Before we started anything, oh yes, of course. Be even before we yeah. started our Indiegogo campaign, I'd um, seen several filmmakers who'd got really great posters yeah. to promote their films before the films were even a thing, or before you could even watch the films. Really good, intriguing posters, and I knew of Sean Strong's work. He'd done loads of stuff for local filmmakers and uh, musicians, but I'd never had a project where, as much as I loved his stuff, where I, I could have used his skills or whatever yeah it's a real edge to his posters yeah absolutely you know a lot of people do sort of test scenes and stuff to like when they're doing indiegogo campaigns and yeah. whatever and i thought if we did like a, a really great poster campaign instead i think we'd that probably be more beneficial and it certainly was because the posters that we did with sean they're kind of they're like mood boards as much as anything else yeah. from those posters you know exactly the, the, what, what the, the film is you, you get the style you get the 
the get tone the, of it. Yeah, everything's there. You yeah. Get, you get the feeling of what the genre of mm-hmm. film's going to be like. Yeah. There's no mistake. A bit quirky, a bit dark, yeah. a bit horrific, a bit dramatic. You, you look at the poster, you don't need any words, and you know what you're going to yeah. go and see. Um, and so it's, I think it's the problem that some people have when they're, they're doing film posters, particularly if um, they're doing film posters for short films, they, they look nice and artistic and they look intriguing, but they, yeah. they don't have anything really to do with the films. Whereas I think our posters were, like I said, they're kind of pretty much mood boards. And because we did those first, Sean was like the first person we brought on to work with us. It wasn't just like people on Indiegogo we could show it was like anyone else that came on board. Like, this is the style. We had someone help us buy the costumes. But in the beginning, it was me and you going around trying to find this style. <laughs> yeah. And once we'd sort of, you know, had that in concrete, and this, yeah. this is style, and we put it on the poster, um, then every costume for Andy after Revolved that around fit into that mould. Yeah. So, yeah, um, anyone who's doing um, a crowdfunding campaign, get a great poster. Yeah. Get an awesome poster that use that as your, as your pivot. Yeah, your not 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 an intriguing one. Get a one that really sums up your film because that helped no end. And and Sean was great. He came back and he did posters with Matt as Perry. He did posters with Terry. Terry. He came on that day when we filmed with Terry. With we, Ryan. Yes, Ryan and James and Oliver. He came when yeah. we filmed with them. He even took some pictures of some of the imaginary characters. This is true. This is true, yes. <laughs> they, even the, even one of the imaginary characters has their own poster. They have indeed. Oh, yeah, they were, they were great. And that brings us nicely on, because you say you came to some of these locations. The locations themselves. Um, and am I right in thinking that Nigel Davey found the initial, the main location? Yeah. So, Mike's very loud, and there's a lot of swearing in the script. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> So we'd had a couple of offers of people wanting to lend their flats. I think even at one point, you and Amanda, your wife, yeah. then fiancé, had offered to use your place. That's right, yes. But because I knew that we were going to have long days, I knew it was going to be loud and sweary, <laughs> like, it really needed to be away. <laughs> From the general public. From, yes, people. I get the idea. Um well, it's my fault because I wrote the script. <laughs> I could have wrote something a bit more quieter and family yeah, friendly. My little ponies. <laughs> yeah. um, so it wasn't just the location, the look of the location that was important. It was also it needed to yeah. be kind of isolated. And so, yes, Nigel Davy found this great location in the Licky Hills in Birmingham, well, just outside of Birmingham. Um, and it, it was good for some reasons and it was bad for for other reasons. Essentially, what it was was like a... It was Station. an old office block. It, it basically was. Um, it was a house. No, it was a. It was a coach semi- house yeah. converted into an office <clears throat> block with still some of the furnishings of a house in there. Yeah, but also there was a some of the furnishings and some... there was a kitchen and there was a bathroom with a bath. Yeah, even a loft. Yes, there was a loft. Um, it had everything we needed, and it had more, much more space than what you see in the film. Yeah, which was ideal for wardrobe, makeup, Storage. people just hanging out, yeah. food. But we had this great communal area, so it w- it was great for that respect. It was great that it was in the middle of nowhere, so we weren't bothering anybody. Okay. The disadvantages to it, it was fucking miles away from everybody. It wasn't <laughs> close to anybody. It wasn't close to you, it wasn't close to me, it wasn't close to Laura. So it was a bit of a haul every day, getting there and back. If I remember, um, there was still office equipment that was in our way in this one room, and mm. we actually lifted and put it back out into this little back garden area to get it out of the That's way. True. Well, the, 
I don't know if we want to go into it. Essentially, it was um, a call centre at one time. Yeah. Um, and they hadn't been paying their bills for months and months and months. And then one day, the the guy, the landlord, he went over to see what was going on and like, found out that they'd just cleared out and they'd left all the computers and the desks. They'd just taken the hard drives. Yeah. Um, so there was just rows and rows of desks. It's literally a house with desks in it. Um and so we were just like lobbing these computers at the back of the room <laughs> and trying to stack these tables just to clear space. And then, yeah, like you said, we were throwing stuff outside. Um, and that was another good bit as well. We had like a little garden. People could just chill yeah, outside. Right. It was pretty warm during that time, I think. Yeah, we had a couple of rainstorms, mm. I remember. We'd mistimed rainstorms. Yeah. I mean, we wanted the rain at certain times and it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And then there were times where we didn't want it and we had to... Another, for a bit until it finished. another disadvantage was we weren't allowed to film there beyond a certain time, which was a bit annoying. Um, so we, we tried to keep to that for a little bit. Also, we weren't allowed to stop over. That was it. Yeah. Um, it would it would have been it would have been too perfect if we could have stopped over because there were some days we just could have just gone okay, we'll yeah. just work for another hour and we'll just chill here yeah. and bed down and you know pick up in the morning. But we weren't allowed to do that. I mean, Nigel, as great as he is, he was constantly winding me up the whole shoot. Like, he'd be calling me up and say, oh, I've heard from so-and-so and this has happened. I'm like, what? And they'd say, oh, no, I'm only joking. I'm like, for God's sake. <laughs> um, but then, because we weren't allowed to film beyond a certain point, we just got to the point where we just couldn't not carry on filming some days. So we did carry on. And one of the, typically, one of the times that we carried on filming, the, the guy, he had a, a building next door that he also managed so yeah. he was around up until a certain point during the day more often than not he left before we were supposed to leave anyway so it wasn't too much of an issue yeah. but on this particular day he was still there at nine o'clock and it just so happened that it was one of your loudest sweariest scenes oh god i remember this and he'd he'd noticed that we were still there and he came storming over to tell us to get out and he, he was about to knock on the door and all he could hear was you screaming and yelling and swearing and then so then he must have gone off not went to get involved um <laughs> and then i got a call from nigel the next day saying oh the the landlord guy's been in touch and um he said you know saying you were you were there and you were having a big argument swearing at each other and stuff and i thought he was winding me up but like for once he was actually being serious at this guy and but he didn't realize that we were filming he um he was, going, he was telling nigel saying, you wouldn't believe the things that they were calling each other <laughs> um, okay so That's yeah a story to remember. so and like if 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 we'd have still been there doing like a quiet scene, it would have kicked the door in, I think, yeah. and turfed us out. But because, uh, yeah, you were yelling your head off, he, he was like, he scarpered. <laughs> <laughs> so as well as finding these fantastic locations, the yeah. Mickey Hills, the ones that we did the green screening at, and mm-hmm. ones for the, 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 the yeah. location, which were stone's throw from each other, Yes, we uh, we also had to go on a great prop hunting mm-hmm. uh, Which was one expedition. of my favourite things. I love uh, <laughs> gathering props and costumes and stuff. It's one of my favourite things to do when... We're doing films and stuff. Um, so because this, you think you can like visualise it when you see yeah, it? Yeah, it really helps. It, it's, it's no draw for me. I really enjoy doing that kind of thing. So we talked to before that during pre-production, we were doing a lot of rehearsing of the script and stuff. Yeah. And one of the other things that we did was me and you went off round all sorts of charity shops. Because if you'd seen any of the clips or any of the photos, you know that Andy's yeah. style's very old. And so we couldn't pop down to Pound Stretch or whatever. Or and keep, yeah, or Not like that we had the budget for House of Fraser. We were <laughs> definitely on a Pound Stretcher budget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we are going to charity shops to find 
all of Andy's costumes and props and stuff. And through doing that, they were just just through me and you picking up stuff and yeah. talking, we'd we'd come up with little bits of business which ended up in the script. One yeah. in particular, the cardigan. <clears throat> yeah, that was that looking through thing. clothes and there the, was like this perfect cardigan, but it was a woman's cardigan mixed in with the men's stuff. So, oh, damn. And so I mentioned that to you. Yeah. And you said, oh, well, we, let's go and have a look through the women's cardigan <laughs> yeah. and see if there's one that would fit me. Um, so we, yeah, we did. And we'll leave it as a surprise in the film, but there's like yeah, a little... There's, a, there's something there. Yeah, there's yeah, a little thing that we came up with. And it was, it was a good exercise because we did... It helped elaborate on who Andy was... And also we had these little tiny bits of business which we ended up putting back into the script and stuff, yeah. which, yeah, it just helped develop just help, everything. Yeah, it emphasised the character a bit more. But then there was other times, more specifically the props, where we'd travel around Birmingham in this great big van. Yeah, so... To, and you had this incident, uh, this place that... Uh, uh, was it an old lady had passed away? I think she'd, she'd gone into care. She'd gone into care, sorry. And her neighbours were trying to clear out her flat to give us some money to help her. That's right, yeah, to give us um, money. I was on Gumtree looking for for stuff, and I noticed this one person, Miles, like, it wasn't really until we started doing this film and started gathering props and stuff and like, finding locations that I really realised how big Birmingham is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is it is, large. It is huge. So um, completely over the other side of Birmingham from where either of us are, there was this, um, yeah, like Mike said, this woman who'd moved out and um, her friends were helping her clear the flat and they'd got these large pieces of furniture. So obviously when we were going around buying little props and costumes and stuff, we could just do that ourselves. But um, We hired a van for the day um, to go around and collect as much sort of furniture as we could, old furniture. And I'd found these three bits of pieces um, from this woman's place. And so we went to this block of flats it turned out that they were literally on the 20th floor or something like the, that but they the, were... it was an advantage in a way because of course uh, this old lady had lived with this furniture yeah. for as many years as she had done but of course she wouldn't have had the effort all the time or the inclination to want to get this furniture all the way no. down to buy new stuff to go all the way back mm-hmm. up again so she'd st- sat with this furniture which dated back into the 70s and 80s at least. Way beyond, yeah. So they were perfect for what we wanted. And dirt cheap as well. And because they were cleaning out the flat, because they'd only obviously put on these big pieces of furniture, and I was looking around them, I think we were in the kitchen, and I saw these old old irons and these old kettles. Yeah. And I said, do you think we can... Can we ask them if we can have yeah. these things? Yeah. And he, so you, you sort of broached in. So can, can we buy these as well off you? And they were yeah. kind of, they were kind of looking at us like you're taking the piss. <laughs> a little bit, but I think they did. They eventually let us buy some of the things. No, no, they did. And then I was kind of like, what about that? Can we have that? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, we want it. And it got to the point where, like I said, to begin with, they thought we were taking the piss. Yeah. But then when they realised that we were genuine and we wanted the stuff they yeah. were kind of they were running off into the rooms and coming back with really odd crap stuff and going what about this like they had those two statuettes off the fireplace oh yeah <laughs> they came back with them and like, what about these and i was like they're awful they're brilliant i want them yeah <laughs> um and so and then they were kind of like up in the ante between themselves they were like each running off trying to find the worst oh, thing that they could God. possibly and i don't think they could believe their luck because they'd had this they've got this horrible task of cleaning this woman's 
poor woman's flat on the 20th floor of this yeah. block of flats, neither of them have transport. And we turn up with a van wanting to take as much off the I hands as possible. took three quarters of the stuff out. I know they had like a big city or a table. The, that that else city, that yeah, horrible city. And we took a dresser, a couple of dressers and the table from the window yeah. and, and the chairs. And, and then the we took all the little bits. Yeah, the kettles, the irons, the meat grinder. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe the bread, we did it, the bread bin and all kinds of stuff. Um, but, the, yeah, they couldn't believe their luck. Yeah, and we couldn't believe ours. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Perfect things. But that's that. That was... Uh... As most of pre-production, yeah. We yeah. Also, we haven't mentioned the funding that we did through Indiegogo. Oh, yes, But since yes. many of you are f- via Indiegogo, you already know that story. So we might yeah. <laughs> we might touch on that another time. Yeah. On the next podcast, we're going to start talking about the filming... Uh, we'll, but we'll probably split that with the stories that we know about over a, a couple or yeah. quite a few episodes. Mm-hmm. But like we said, we've got rather a loose theme around pre-production for this episode. But more for specifically, we're going to focus on casting. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we found we find most interesting about any movie is the what could have been scenarios around the casting, which is often so critical mm. and we all know the famous examples yeah like um tom Selleck. he was uh literally a mustache air away from being uh, indiana jones <laughs> yeah there was eric stoltz who filmed for several weeks as marty mcfly mm-hmm. on the back to the future before uh, being replaced by michael j fox they did, just didn't think he, he yeah. sat into the role mm-hmm. uh, and he michael j fox obviously turned it into a career defining role absolutely everyone knows will smith as well he was uh, the producer's choice for the matrix but the um <laughs> They, uh, I think the directors didn't want to do the, the Fresh Prince of the Matrix, so they went with uh, Keanu. Keanu instead. But uh, I think he even admitted himself he would have too, he would have become too much of the screen. He didn't mm. like the film to be the one that talked yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. But we ourselves have mm-hmm. prepared a top ten list of maybe more uh, obscure, certainly not as well known in most cases, what could have been castings. We haven't limited ourselves to indie films either, although there are a few of those in the mix. Mm-hmm. So let's kick off with Ten. Frank Sinatra as Dirty Harry. Now, he was the original Dirty Harry for the film. He was mm-hmm. cast as it. But unfortunately, he suffered an injury, broke his arm and wasn't able to continue. I think they were only short way into the film at mm-hmm. the time. Um, and then, of course, they turned to... Clint. Clint Eastwood. Nine. Robert De Niro. He auditioned. He, he got as far as doing a screen test, I think, for The Godfather. So he's well known for his Oscar-winning role in The Godfather Part Two. Yeah. But he was uh, auditioning. I and mean, this is before he'd kind of made any kind of waves, really. He'd done some films with Brian De Palma. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he auditioned for James Caan's role, Sonny. So, yeah, so obviously... If he had got that role in The Godfather, he never would have gone on to do his Oscar-winning performance in Part Two as yeah, uh, the young, um, the, the young uh, younger Brando. Brando. Yeah. So how different could that have, you know, all turned out for yeah. him? Can you imagine James Conde, the younger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight. Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. as Mrs. Smith in the in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. She was cast and was uh, doing lots of before, uh, performing in rehearsals with Brad Pitt, but she pulled out herself because she felt there was no actual chemistry going on between Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So, of course, then after that, it uh, uh, went to Angelina Jolie, of course. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's where those two met. Seven. This is an interesting one. 
Robin Williams wanted to be Hagrid in um, <laughs> Harry Potter. Like he 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 lobbied for that role, um, but they the producers and um, particularly J.K. Rowling had a British only casting rule. Also, at another point, Chris Columbus, the director, yeah, he'd actually cast uh, an American kid, Liam Aiken, as Harry Potter. I guess he must have done a really convincing English accent. Everyone was happy with him. He got back on a plane thinking he was Harry Potter. When he got off the plane at the other end, he was informed, I'm sorry, we found out you're American. (laughs) (laughs) You're no longer Harry Potter. You're no longer Harry Potter. You know, if they had not had that rule, can you imagine how different Harry Potter would have been with Robin Williams as Hagrid? And would we ever have heard of Daniel Radcliffe had he not have... um... Well, I get the feeling the Robin Williams thing almost harks back to the Will Smith Matrix thing. Yeah, it would have been too much, wouldn't it? Too much Six. This is the most hilarious one I've found. Sean Connery as Gandalf. He was actually presented with it first. He didn't understand the script. He didn't understand what Gandalf was actually saying. Right. In, I don't know if this actually refers to when he talks in Elvish mm-hmm. or when he's actually speaking English. But for that reason, Sean Connery turned the role down. He would have been quite a grumpy uh, Gandalf Oh, he yeah, would have been it? very grumpy. Was it around that time he did The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and he just hated doing that? He hated doing most films, I think he did. He always seemed like an angry character. After but he was so kind of vile about The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. They're like, you wouldn't want that for Lord of the Rings. It probably could have destroyed the, the film if there was someone... Because everyone, it seemed, who was on board with Lord of the Rings yeah. loved the experience and they really loved yeah. the film yeah. and kind of got on together. And he, would just, he wouldn't have fit in that mix. I couldn't have seen how he would have fit in that group. I do remember, but there's this fantastic story of when the, the cast was sat in their trailer for certain things, and um, they would play mu- the Hobbit, people yeah. playing the Hobbit, mm-hmm. Elijah Wood, and, uh, they would play music, and in this screen, just to the side of them, was Ian McKellen as Gandalf, yeah. and every now and again, they would hear, run that music down! <laughs> Yeah, so that was, the grumpiness was, was still gen- there. Yeah, that was gentle, gentler Ian McKellen, but uh, yeah, certainly Sean Connery would have been kicking that screen door and then yeah, kicking and the Hobbit out. The <laughs> beating the crap out of the Hobbit. Five. Titanic. Uh, Jeremy Sisto. He was he screen tested with Kate Winslet. It must have been a really late um, yeah. screen test because they were both in costume. They were on their actual set. Was that the role that went to? That went to Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Jeremy Sisto seems to have slipped into a lot of indie roles and obviously Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, he before that he was Oscar nominated anyway for yeah. What's Eating Gilbert Grape and he'd had uh, a lot of critical acclaim for other films. I'm sure he would have done all right, but I, I think the, the massive success of Titanic certainly gave him the opportunity to do what he wanted to do. Yeah, um, If you're in the most successful film of all time, you definitely get the pick of what you want to do. And it's notable that since he's been acting since I think about the early 80s and he's got 42 credits on his IMDb but he's only been producing films since the early 2000s and he's got 30 producing credits so he's quite a sort of a powerhouse producer and I wonder if he would have been able to take on that responsibility had he not had this massive success with Titanic 4. Adam Sandler for me I find him extremely frustrating because you can see the potential of him being a good actor, but he just produces awful and stars in awful, awful comedies. For the most part, yeah. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why he didn't take the role of the bear Jew in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Mm -hmm. 
and I would have loved to have seen him in that role. He's produced, he's acted in previous films like Punch Drunk Love, yeah. where you can see his potential mm -hmm. and see how good he is. Uh, but in the end, he turned it down. I think he just shot himself in the foot. Three. This is one of my favourite what could have been castings because it's just so weird to think of it now. It's Seth Green as Jay in Rats. <laughs> so if you know Kevin Smith's work, you'll know that there's two characters that featured in his first five films yeah. and then reappeared in Clerks 2. Uh, and that's himself as Silent Bob and his friend Jason Mewes as Jay. Jay was sort of based on Jason Mewes. He was Jay in Clerks. And then when they did More Rats, the studio funding it didn't want Jason Mewes involved. They wanted a name. I think they gave Kevin Smith a list of names and everyone was adamant that it should be Jason Mewes. Um, and the studio did everything possible to try and dissuade him to the point where they wouldn't pay for Jason Mewes' hotel. He had to sleep on in Kevin Smith's room. Um, and they had Seth Green on hold the whole entire shoot to come in at a second's notice. So if Jason Mewes did the slightest thing to fuck up, they would have fired him and brought in Seth Green. That worked out, but yeah, it could have been a very different story. And I don't know how inspired Kevin Smith might have been to bring back those characters if um, Jason Mewes wasn't yeah, playing exactly. Two. Oh, Jay Simpson as the Terminator. He was the studio's first choice, and it was Cameron who wanted uh, Schwarzenegger. Oh, Thank you, God, that Cameron got that right. Yeah. One. And then finally, James Woods in Reservoir Dogs. Which role was he going to He was. He was offered. Well, Quentin Tarantino sent um, the offer of the role of Mr. Orange, Tim Roth's role. Yeah. To James Woods' agent, and um, apparently, allegedly, the story goes that the agent never passed on the script. Uh, Reservoir Dogs comes out. It's huge. James Woods meets Quentin Tarantino at some event some t yeah. at some point, um, and James Woods goes up to him and says, hey, I loved Reservoir Dogs. If you, you know consider me for anything else, I'd love to work with you. And Tarantino's kind of like, what the fuck are you talking about? I offered you one of the roles in Reservoir Dogs. And James Woods was so furious by this, he uh, subsequently fired his agent for um, not passing on the role. Wow. But um, that's an insane one because... I think Tim Roth was great in that role, and I just can't imagine James Woods and Harvey Keitel playing off each other very well. Harvey Keitel had that kind of he, he, he was that fatherly yeah. uh, approach. I just couldn't imagine that same dynamic, no. that dynamic between Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel. So it is kind of like a, a father-son role. Um, I, that just couldn't be replicated with those no. two. Just wouldn't work. I, um, I could imagine if James Wood played Mr. Pink, the Steve Buscemi role, yeah. mm -hmm. but as the copper, no. He, no. no. So yeah, that's it. That's our top ten of uh, what could have been. Which brings us neatly onto those films that did get it right with inspired casting and those films that got it oh, oh so wrong. My perfect casting, mm -hmm. and it was his debut performance, Vinnie Jones in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Uh-huh. And um, this time around, have you found a... The Bollywood uh, remake porno of it, the cock block and two smoking pakoras. Yeah, I'm not sure what role he played in that. You know, maybe he sucked on the two smoking barrels. Who knows? I've not found it yet. But Vinnie Jones in that role. Um, there was one thing that I remember from it, and that's when he has his violent streak in it, mm -hmm. and he gets the guy's head in the car door, and the director turns to him and says, "Just go for it." Yeah. Bloody hell, they didn't mm. expect what they got. 
I mean, the pure rage and hatred that came out of Vinny doing that. Oh. Yeah. It's, a, it's an odd cast, I think, because he, he put yeah. in a lot of non-actors, Vinnie Jones being one of them. And I think Vinnie Jones is probably the only non-actor who does it convincingly. Yeah. There's a lot of kind of ex-fighters really struggling to get their lines out, a lot of them. It's, yeah. um, but certainly Vinnie Jones, with no acting experience, he was um, absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah. Knows, yeah. Mm-hmm. And for you, you're perfect? Is Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. As good as Bruce Willis is, as good as Uma Thurman is, as good as John Travolta is, I could imagine other people in those roles. Particularly with John Travolta, Michael Madsen was supposed to be that role, and I would have loved, (laughs) I would have loved to have seen that version of Pulp Fiction. But with Samuel L. Jackson, there just isn't anybody who I can think of who could have done that role justice. He was just just so brutal. I mean, that that, uh, first conversation he has with those lads in that flat... And um, just the way he just spurts off, he shoots the gun and goes, oh, I'm sorry, did I just break your concentration? Mm -hmm. You can't see anybody else saying it, the way he says it. And the joy he has in in delivering that speech, you you can't, it's like you say, you can't see anyone else saying it the way he said it. Mm -hmm. It was almost Shakespearean. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, it was perfect. So what about uh, a role that didn't, quite oh, live up to or completely miscast there's there's a film which is terrible yeah it is terrible which is a shame because some of the points he made in it are really good Glenn or Glenda uh, made by Ed Wood the guy who made Plan 9 from A to Space now he made this and it, well, it is about transgender issues uh, but through the entire film you feel like you're being narrated to death Bella Lugosi if he had an knife and fork he'd, he'd be chewing the scenery as we spoke <laughs> Uh, bless him, very good as uh, Dracula in this. He would be delivering lines as if every single word and syllable meant something. Uh, one of the lines that kept getting repeated all the times was slugs and snails and puppy dog tails. I don't know why he kept getting repeated, but several of the characters kept saying it. And mm-hmm. right at the end, he would be going, slugs and snails and puppy dogs. Tales. Oh my God, get on with it, Bella. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, the pauses he would put in, mm-hmm. um, they weren't so much pregnant pauses as the person had had twins and they'd had their own babies <laughs> that were that long, some of them. Terrible. So he just, he, the film was bad enough, but he just didn't suit at all. His mm-hmm. role was meaningless and he made it even more so by trying to make it mean something. Yeah. And what about yourself? What about your miscast? My miscast is Gary Oldman in Tiptoes. Gary Oldman, one of the the British actors. Yeah, well, the actors, one of the, yeah. one of the greats. Um, in this film, he bizarrely plays the twin brother of Matthew McConaughey. Well, of course, because they look so alike. Right. Um, but weirder than that, he is a dwarf. Well, the special effects department must have had a field day. Um, crazy, really. Um, to make matters even more weird you've got peter dinklage in this film playing a character that really could you could have easily taken him out he wouldn't it makes okay. no he has no storyline at all he's just there yeah. you just wonder why dinklage just didn't have that role to begin with i think you could argue that gary oldman was in there for the the star power yeah. but this is 2003 you already got mcconaughey and kate beckinsale in it yeah. who at that time they were like the go-to people for yeah. these sorts of movies yeah. so you, you didn't you didn't need another person so why 
they cast Gary Oldman in this role. It's, it's baffling to say the least. Um, and obviously, a lot of people found it quite insulting and just weird that they would um, cast uh, a normal sized actor as a a small act as a small character um, and have to go to such trouble with special effects to make it look like he was an actual dwarf. So those were some of our perfect castings and some of our miscastings. But we've um, watched a few films recently. Uh, one of them did the festival circuit last year. It got released in America a bit earlier than what it got released here. And that's Lean on Pete, a new film from Andrew Hay, who's a British director. All about a, a young lad. Young lad and... Um, a horse he A horse. Um, I liked it because it harked back to a genre of movies that you rarely see these days, and that's the road movie. Yeah. When it first started, I thought, oh, this is a small-town drama kind of yeah. thing. And then it changed into a road movie. Yeah. And I enjoyed both aspects of it, but I didn't. it, it spent too long being a, a small-town drama yeah. before it became a road movie. Yeah. Like, some movies work really well, like um, From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. That works really well. You've got the road movie part, and then you've got the horror part. Yeah. Those two weirdly worked well together. <laughs> yeah. With this film, was, I was kind of settling in for a small-town drama, and then it became a road movie. And I was like, oh, okay, it's this type of movie now. As much as I liked each bit, structurally it didn't work for me. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of on the same par with that. And um, Lean on Pink was, seemed to be was the name of the horse. Yeah. And it was almost like this was the inspiration for the lad. Um, and... As we're talking about the film, I'm going to be obviously we're going to be giving some things away for the spoilers. So here's a spoiler now: the horse passes away, but he passes away before the end of the film, and it, that kind of threw me. Mm -hmm. It threw me a lot because I thought this horse, this horse, and this uh, this young lad were, going, were doing this journey together, and the in almost like the Rain Man sort of essence, one helps the other. Yeah, but it didn't work that way, and because Leon Pig passed away three quarters of the way in the last part of the film was a little little weird or yeah bit jarring mm -hmm. one of my few criticisms is, is the ending um it sort of it turns into this series of event of sort of meetings with different people so yeah. it's like i said it starts off with this um small town drama and see is in it and he's awesome oh, i loved brilliant. i loved seeing steve buscemi in this kind of role again because it wasn't until i watched this that i realized yeah. how how long he'd been out of these sorts of roles he'd yeah. you know he'd done his tv show and he'd pretty much been doing voice voiceover roles in um cartoons and whatnot um and then when he turned up in this I was like, oh my god i really missed him because he's just such a presence in the sort of early 90s indie films yeah, well, Pulp Fiction, uh, reservoir dogs. dogs all of the Coen brothers stuff that they did yeah. during the 90s um so i i love seeing him in this and and so he was like a major character through that first chunk of the film and then he's not in it anymore and it and then he's then the kid starts meeting these people and they're in it for a few scenes and then he meets another person yeah. and then when he got to the end it didn't feel definitive enough it didn't feel like he'd found a place that he was looking for he was still sleeping on a sofa he was sleeping on his yeah. aunt's sofa he didn't have his own room didn't have his own bed it didn't feel like he'd actually got to a place where he was going to be happy the, the, yeah so yeah structurally that for me it didn't quite work but there was so much that I loved about it. Like oh. I said, Buscemi was fantastic. I was disappointed that he wasn't in it more. Yeah. Um, Chloe the, Sevigny, who was the, the jockey, she was great. Loved yeah. seeing her. Everybody in the film played the role 
perfectly. What did you think of the main actor, Charlie? Charlie himself. Um, I felt a little frustrated, but I felt better at the end because there were times where tragic things happened during the film, especially the death of Lean on Pete. Mm -hmm. And it was as if he didn't know how to communicate emotionally, but right at the end he has that moment with his aunt where he actually breaks down the whole world is he he's almost like he's taken the whole world off his back and he emotionally crashes yeah. into his aunt which and i and it was nice for me because it seemed like he'd, he'd saved him the film had saved it up for that um this boy was unable to talk to speak to save people he wanted yeah. to save and didn't know how to communicate that mm -hmm. emotionally until he was sat with his aunt, and that I liked. And, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's from the fact that he grew up without his mum. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, when the mother figure comes in. So there, there were loads of little moments. I like one of the the little moments I really liked is when he he realizes that he's homeless. It's sort of, and you don't, yeah. and you sort of, you come to that realization as well with him, because um, he's he's sort of run away from home, and he's sort of been sleeping in the van until it breaks down then sleeping with someone sleeping in someone's house yeah. um then he spends a few nights on the street and someone points out to him that you're homeless he's like oh, no i'm not homeless you, you know you do wonder sometimes how people end up being homeless and that was just a really yeah. kind of good example of how someone kind of drifted yeah. into not having anything yeah it was like a slow yeah move into it there are other he, bits... even he didn't realize that you yeah. know he'd, he'd made that sort of descent there were other bits as well which it screamed of the desperation. He he desperately, desperately wanted to finish this journey to get to his aunts. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he's robbed of the money that he's earned. Yeah. And it, it's a happy moment for him that he's earned this money, and this, he's robbed of it. Mm -hmm. And so there's this pent of desperation to get this money because it's his way out. And he gets a, a crowbar and he hits the person who robbed him and mm -hmm. promptly robs the money back. And there's this surge of violence. It's not overbearing, but there is this surge of violent desperation. And it's even better because then when he runs away, he drops the crowbar. And just as he's finishing running around, he just shouts back, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want my money. And then, sorry. It's great because it, as you're homeless, you develop this trait that you have to do to survive, mm -hmm. which he develops just for that moment. But then once he's got the money back, he's back to being the boy and emotionally... He just screams, oh, mm -hmm. for me, it was a nice moment. One of the things I really liked as well was, and we talked about this last time with um, how we approached Homeless Enemy, in that it had to, we've had to do a lot of cutting yeah. between the characters. With this film, there's minimal editing. A lot of the scenes are literally one shot, and they're sometimes stationary shots, sometimes they're really well choreographed tracking shots. Yeah. Very early on, there's a, a scene where he's sitting with his. Uh, father in the kitchen and they're just talking yeah. and it's shot through the doorway and you don't even see the kid's face you just see the back of his head talking to his dad but just their their literal closeness physical closeness yeah. um just speaks volumes there's no need to get close up so the the framing devices were enough to get across their relationship one of, one of the things i liked about it as well was you were always uh, the audience were always placed as an observer yeah purely of the boy so there'd be, there was a scene where um, this character breaks into the son's father's house. Yeah. And um, the character attacks the father, punches yeah. him in the head. But instead of watching the fight and having this massive cutting stage choreograph, the camera turns and focuses on the lad mm -hmm. who runs into his bedroom to go and grab a weapon. You hear this crash. You're not sure what it is. 
but you're stood there just watching the lad watching the scene yeah and it seems to this day he the the father had hit something and some glass had embedded mm-hmm. in him but we still don't know what it was from yeah. or, or whatever and this is all one shot this is uncut yeah, yeah. and that's how it's treated there's the scene where he's been caught stealing the food mm-hmm. and the camera is placed in a position as if you're one of the diners in in the dining room looking through to the staff yeah. room Again, you're treated as the observer. That's what the camera is. The camera just happens to be catching this mm-hmm. scene, but it's focused on the lad the entire time. Yeah. So there's nice things like that, like you go, go stationary mm-hmm. and only moves when the kid moves. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was worried about <clears throat> before I watched this film is, I guess I was aware that it was sort of a, a small-town American sort of setting. Uh, I know it was a British director. That doesn't always work good example this year even though um three billboards by far my favorite film of this year yeah. one of the i think a, a fair criticism is the writer director martin mcdonough you know he clearly doesn't know anything about ebbing missouri he just picked a, a kind of a random small american town and decided that that's what these people from missouri are going to be like like i said i think that's fair criticism with this um, and from watching the special features with the film, it's clear that the director, Andrew Hay, really went to town on getting to know what the, these areas were like, yeah. what the people were like, and it, it feels really authentic. Yeah, definitely, definitely authentic. It's a, I was watching um, a Woody Allen movie. He'd done one set in England with Ewan McGregor and Colin Farrell. Oh, yeah. And that's just, that just is like, you don't know anything about England clearly he's just he's, he's trying to be Mike Lee but it just doesn't work so yeah, it works both ways but yeah so I was, I was a bit worried that uh, a British director making this small town American film wouldn't work but he clearly put in the hours to uh, to make it work let's institute a rating system for our reviews okay well, instead of stars let's let's do big kahuna burgers big kahuna burgers yeah okay how many big kahuna burgers out of five well, I think this is um, quite a lean Kahuna burger. It's a it, it's lean because it's good for you, mm-hmm. Kahuna burger. It's got all the essential ingredients. It's got uh, the burger and the cheese, and it's got the tomato and the lettuce. But structurally, the burgers on the bottom and the cheese <laughs> have been placed on the tomato and the lettuce instead of on the burger. However, all the ingredients are there. Yeah. But structurally, the burgers a bit. So out of five, that's a, that's a, a four star burger. It's got all the right stuff, mm-hmm. um, but they've placed the, the, the structure of the burger. Yeah, I do. I'd agree. Four um, out of five for a burger. Four, four out of five for me as well. Um, again, the, the only issues I have with it are yeah. the structural problems. Yeah, but... the the meat in the burger is yeah. pure uh, it's Aberdeen right. Angus steak. Mm. It's, it's gorgeous, <laughs> but with the cheese on the lettuce, they just. Done something wrong there. Okay, well, this this podcast has gone on much longer oh, than we thought. <laughs> um, so we're going to rattle through some um, recommendations. Um, so, yeah, Phil, you, you clearly watch a lot of indie films. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with a lot. Is there any recommendations you have for us? Sure, yeah. Recently, I saw a film called Breakpoint, not to be confused with Point Break. No so, Keanu in this one? No, no. It's got um, the aforementioned Jeremy's sister. In another world, it could have starred Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, it's on Netflix. Uh, you can also get it on Region One DVD. It's if you're after just a very light 
humorous film I'd go for that it's about two brothers trying to win some tennis championships so yeah if you have something light go for that last time we talked about the Stanford prison experiment um after literally after I posted the podcast it turned up on Netflix so uh, (laughs) if 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 that piqued your interest you can check it out on Netflix now Uh, it's also available on DVD and Blu-ray also I saw a film called uh Crystal Fairy and the Magic Cactus from 2013 isn't that like a Barbie film or something uh no believe it or not Barbie and the Fairies and the Magic Pirates it stars um Michael Cera playing completely against type for once so if you enjoyed his performance, which I did, I, one of my favourite performances of his was his little cameo at the start of This Is The End. Is it This Is The End? The one he Yeah. Yeah. He plays a sort of exaggerated version of himself as a sort of like a coked up, um, coked up Hollywood douchebag. Yeah. Um, and he sort of plays a very similar character in this. And it, there's not much story to it. It's just a very kind of basic road trip through Mexico, then trying to find this cactus with hallucinogenic properties to it and it's real simple but um i just loved michael cera playing a completely different character that's available on dvd and itunes one of my favorite films i saw recently was called lennon company from 2015 it's uh, it's got reese Evans who plays a a musician turned producer he's trying to get his shit together and it's a, a bit of a typical setup sort of midlife crisis sort of thing yeah um, and he's sort of tried to take himself out of the music industry to find himself and he's sort of his solitude is um, invaded by his son who's a also an aspiring mu- musician and he just wants his dad to listen to his demo tape and one of the people he's worked with as a recording artist turns up and sort of so you've got these two people <laughs> vying for his attention what I really liked about it is it's the sort of film where it doesn't have a major emotional turning point there's no kind of no big hugging scenes no big um oh i love you son you know sorry that i've left you all this time like literally ends with his father acknowledging that he listened to the demo tape he doesn't even say that he particularly liked it he just but that's all the son wanted he just wanted him to listen to the demo and he did and that's that's how it sort of transpires and i liked like i said that there's no big hugging emotional bullshit and it's a funny film as well that's one it's called the weight which is a really odd film stars Chloe Seveny who was in Lean on yeah. Pete uh, and Jenna Malone uh, it's two sisters who's the very beginning the mother's already died and uh, Chloe Seveny gets a phone call informing her that in a few days her mother will be resurrected so instead of informing any authorities that their mother's died they they wait for, for the resurrection yeah. that's the wait and it plays out really bizarrely if you're after a, a slow weird film um I recommend that that's available on Region 1 DVD as is Lennon Company. So those those are a few recommendations if you fancy checking out some indies from the last five years. Cinema releases. Cinema releases. Um, we've got a few indies coming out, one of which you may have seen the trailer for already, uh, is the new Spy Clay film, Black Klansman, which is the true story about an African-American police officer from Colorado who successfully manages to infiltrate the local Ku Klux Klan and becomes head of the local chapter. Right. It's produced by Jordan Peele and Jason Bloom, both have scored big last year with Get, Get Out. Yeah. And it stars John David Washington, Adam Driver, and uh, Topher Grace. Uh, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival this year and it won the Grand Jury Prize. Um, it's already out in the States and it's due to be released here at the end of the month, August the 24th. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we go a bit uh, left field and we go to a foreign language indie film, a uh, Polish, uh, Polish film called 
Cold War. Uh, this is a, a love story between two people of different backgrounds and temperaments. Um, they're, you know, they're just completely faithfully mismatched. Uh, and it's set against the background of the Cold War in 1950s Poland. Uh, also features Berlin, Yugoslavia and Paris. Cold War also premiered at Cannes this year and won the Best Director Award. Um, it's released on the 31st of August here in the UK, but it's not out in the US until the end of the year. Uh, another indie film to look out for is an Australian film called Upgrade. This is an action horror sci-fi comedy, which is typically Australian for, us, for me, but they're all great. It's set in the near future. Technology controls nearly all aspects of life. Uh, but when Grey, a self-identified technophobe, has his world turned upside down, his only hope for revenge is an experimental computer chip implant called STEM. It premiered at this year's South by Southwest, where it won the Audience Award. It's the second film directed by prolific horror writer uh, Lee Wanell, who did the first three Saw films and the first three Insidious films. Um, it's also produced by Jason Bloom for Bloomhouse and uh, was released in the States in early June. It's due out here in the UK on the 31st of August. This one only had a £5 million budget. Then we come to Britain, where there's a new film by uh, Idris Elba, the famous DJ and actor from uh, the Thor films. Uh, his directorial debut is Yardie, which is based in 1980s Hackney, London, about a young Jamaican cocaine smuggler who seeks revenge for the death of his older brother. Um, it premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Is out again at the end of the month on the 31st of August in the UK. At the moment, there's uh, no release date for the US. Which leads us to our last film, The Eyes of Orson Welles, which is a documentary film. And it's about the documentarian Mark Cousins, who dives deep into the visual world of the legendary director and actor Orson Welles. Uh, the guy who made um, Citizen Kane. And uh, it's to reveal a portrait of Orson Welles as he's never been seen before. Uh, actually, that sounds really interesting. I really fancy watching that. Uh, it's another film that debuted, uh, debuted at this year's Cannes Film Festival. It's out in the UK on the 17th of August, and at the moment it's still doing festivals in the US. So. Next time, Good Phil, Lord. what we'll be doing next time? Next time, uh, I guess, yeah, like we said before, we'll move on to filming stories of Almost Anime. And as this film seems to have taken quite a while. Absolutely, yes. It's five years in the making so far, so we thought I'd make myself feel a little bit better <laughs> by going through some of the films that uh, have taken years and sometimes decades to complete. Yeah. I think we're also going to cover our favourite our directorial debuts mm -hmm. and we'll part that off against people who made uh, terrible films on their first attempt but have since gone on to make great films and had great successes mm -hmm. as director. We'll also uh, cover reviews of some films including My Friend Dharma, Journeyman, the short film Faceless Man and a retrospective look at a classic indie film Assault on Precinct 13. Please get in touch, send us questions, recommendations for features and shorts uh, and also crowdfunding campaigns for shorts and features uh, if you've got a short film or a, another indie film that you're making please please get in contact with us uh, we may even back them the website for the film we're doing is ownworstenemymovie.com our twitter feed is ownworstenemyuk for those on instagram search out filmmaker that's p-h-i-l-m 
underscore M-A-K-E-R. And on Facebook, search out Own Worst Enemy Movie. Right, that's it. We're done. Now we're off to enter tonight's dance contest at Jackrabbit Slims. I'm going to do the shimmy. You can do the shanty. Goodbye. <laughs>